Section 8 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ken Campbell. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 8 More Strange Discoveries. But Frayn was far from done with excitement for the day. For a while all eyes seemed centered on the chase, now scattered miles towards the east, and, save for two of the number left behind, blown, spent, and hopelessly out of the race, soon lost to the view among the distant walls and ravines. Then everyone turned to welcome the coming harbinger, to congratulate him on his escape, to demand the reason for his daring essay. Greg and his men were first to reach him and while one of them was seen through the level glasses to dismount and give the courier's fresh horse, thereby showing that the gray was well-nigh exhausted, the whole party turned slowly toward the post. Then one of their numbers suddenly darted forth from the group and came spurring at top speed straight for the ford. "'That means news of importance,' said Webb at the instant, and Gregg and all of his squad are coming in, not following Blake. That means he and they are more needed elsewhere.' Come on, Mr. Ross, we'll go down to meet that fellow. Orderly, have my horse sent to the ford. So, followed by three or four of the young officers, the married men being restrained, as a rule, by protesting voices, close at hand the commanding officer went slipping and sliding down a narrow winding pathway, a mere goat track, many of the soldiers following at respectful distance, while all the rest of the gathered throng remained at the crest, eagerly, almost breathlessly, awaiting the result. They saw the trooper come speeding in across the flats from the northeast, saw, as he reached the bench, that he was spurring hard, heard, even at the distance, the swift batter of hoofs upon the resounding sod, could almost hear the fierce panting of the racing steed, saw horse and rider come plunging down the bank and into the stream, and shoving breast-deep through the foaming waters, then issue, dripping on the hither shore, where, turning loose his horse, the soldier leaped from the saddle and saluted his commander. But only those about the major heard the stirring message. "'Captain Gregg's compliments, sir. It's Rudge from the Dry Fork.' Sergeant Kelly feared that Kennedy hadn't got through, for most of Lame Wolf's people pulled away from the fork yesterday morning, coming this way, and the sergeant thought it was to unite with Straber to surround any small command that might be sent ahead from here. Rudge was ordered to make a wide sweep to the east, so as to get around them, and that's what took him so long. He left not two hours after Kennedy. In spite of his years of frontier service and training in self-control, Webb felt, and others saw, that his face was paling. Ray, with only fifty men at his back, was now out of sight, out of reach of the post, and probably face to face with, if not already surrounded by, the combined forces of the Sioux. Not a second did he hesitate. Among the swarm that had followed him was a young trumpeter of K-Troop, reckless of the fact that he should be at barracks packing his kit. As luck would have it, there at his back hung the brazen clarion, held by its yellow braid and cord. "'Boots and saddles carry quick!' ordered the major, and as the ringing notes re-echoed from bluff and building wall and came laughing back from the distant crags at the south, the little throng at the bank and the crowd at the point of the bluff had scattered like little coveys, the men full run for the barracks and stables, never stopping to reason why. Nearly half an hour later, gray-haired Captain Dade stood at the point of bluff near the flagstaff. Esther, pale and tearful by his side, 
waving adieu and godspeed to Webb, who had halted in saddle on reaching the opposite bank and was watching his little column through the ford. Three staunch troops, each about sixty strong, reinforced by half a dozen raised men left behind in the forward rush at dawn, but scorning disqualification of any kind now that danger menaced their beloved captain and their comrades of the sorrel troop. In all the regiment, no man was loved by the rank and file as was Billy Ray. Brilliant soldiers, gifted officers, sterling men were many of his comrades, but ever since he first joined on the heels of the Civil War, more than any one of its commissioned list, Ray had been identified with every stirring scout and campaign fight or incident in regimented history. Truscott, Blake, Hunter, and Gregg, among the junior captains, had all had their tours of detached duty, instructing at West Point, recruiting in the big eastern cities, serving as aide-de-camp to some general officer, but of Ray it could be said he had hardly been east of the Missouri from the day he joined until his wedding day, and only rarely and briefly since that time. More than any officer had he been prominent in scout after scout. Arizona, Mexico, Texas, the Indian Territory, Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Montana, even parts of Idaho and Utah, he knew as he used to know the roads and runways of the blue-grass region of his native state. From the British line to the Gulfs of Mexico and California, he had studied the West. The regiment was his home, his intense pride, and its men had been his comrades and brothers. The veterans trusted and swore by. The younger troopers looked up to and well-nigh worshipped him. And now... As the story that the Sioux had probably surrounded the Sorrel Troop went like wildfire through the garrison, even the sick in hospital begged to be allowed to go, and one poor lad, frantic through fever and enforced confinement, broke from the hold of the half-hearted attendant, tore over to K Troop barracks, demanded his kit of Sergeant Schreiber, and finding the quarters deserted, the men all gone to the stables, dared to bust into the magnate's own room, in search of his arms and clothing, and thereby roused a heavy sleeping soldier who damned him savagely until, through wild raving, he gathered that some grave danger menaced Captain Ray. Even his befuddled senses could fathom that, and while guards and nurses bore the patient, shrieking and struggling back to the hospital, Kennedy soused his hot head in the cooling waters of their frontier laboratory and was off like a shot to the stables. It was long before he found his horse, for the guard had taken Kilmaine to F Troop Stables, and Kennedy had been housed by K. It was longer still before he could persuade the guard that he had a right, as he put it, to ride after the major. Not until Captain Dade had been consulted would they let him go. Not indeed until, in person, Kennedy had pleaded his case with that cool-headed commander. Dade noted the flushed and swollen face but reasoned that nothing would more speedily shake the whiskey from his system than a long gallop in that glorious air and sunshine. Major Webb is following the trail of Captain Ray, said he. You follow the majors. You can't miss them, and there are no more Indians now to interpose. You should catch him by noon, then give him this. This was a copy of a late dispatch just in from Laramie saying that the revolt had reached the Sioux at the agencies and reservations on the white earth, and would demand the attention of every man at the post. No reinforcement, therefore, could be looked for from that quarter until the general came. It was no surprise to Dade. 
It could be none to Webb, for old Red Cloud had ever been an enemy. Even when bribed and petted and fed and coddled in his village on the Wakapachika, his nephew led the bolt afield. No wonder the old war chief backed him with abundant food, ammunition, and eager warriors sent from home. But it was after eleven when Kennedy drove his still-wearied horse through the Platte, and far to the north saw the dun-dust cloud that told where Webb's little column was trotting hard to the support of the sorrels. His head was aching, and he missed the morning drought of soldier coffee. He had eaten nothing since his cold lunch at the Major's, and would have been wise had he gone to Mistress McGann's and begged a cup of the fragrant java with which she had stimulated her docile master ere he rode forth. But the one idea uppermost in Kennedy's muddled brain was that the sorrels were trapped by the Sioux, and every trooper was needed to save them. At three in the morning he felt equal to fighting with a whole Sioux nation, with all its dozen tribes and dialects. At three-thirty he had been whipped to a stand by just one of their number, and mother of Moses, one that spoke English as well, or as ill as any man. Sore in soul and body was Kennedy, and sore and stiff was his gallant bay Kilmaine. When these comrades, over three years' service, shook the spray of the plat from their legs and started dodgingly northward on the trail. Northward they went for a full three miles, Kilmaine sulky and protesting. The dust cloud was only partially visible now, hidden by the ridge a few miles ahead, when over that very ridge, probably four miles away to the right front, Kennedy saw coming at speed a single rider and reined to the northeast to meet him. Blake and his men had gone far in that direction. Two of their number, with horses too slow for a chase after nimble ponies, had, as we had seen, drifted back and joined, unprepared though they were for the field, the rear of Webb's column. But now came another, not aiming for Webb, but heading for Frayne. It meant news from the chase that might be important. It would take him but little from the direct line to the north. Why not meet him in here? Kennedy reined to the right, riding slowly now and seeking the higher level from which he could command a better view. At last they neared each other, the little Irish veteran sore-headed and in evil mood, and a big, wild-eyed, scare-faced trooper new to the frontier, spurring homeward with panic in every feature, but rejoicing at the sight of a comrade soldier. Get back! Get back! He began to shout as soon as he got within hailing distance. There's a million Indians just over the ridge. They've got the captain. What captain? yelled Kennedy, all ablaze at the instant. Speak up, ye shivering loon. Blake, he got way ahead of us. Then it's to him you should be running, not home, ye cur. Turn about now, turn about or I'll... And in a fury, Pat had seized the other's rein and spurred savagely at Kilmaine both horses instantly waking as though responsive to the wrath and fever of their little master. He fairly whirled the big trooper around and, despite fearsome protests, bore him onward toward the ridge, swift questioning as they rode. How came they to send a raw rookie on such a quest? Why, the rookie gasped in explanation that he was on the stable guard, and the captain took the first six men in sight. How happened it that the captain got so far ahead of him? There was no keeping up with the captain. He was on his big, raw-boned racehorse, chasing three Indians that was firing, and it hit Meisner. But there was still three of the troop to follow him, and the captain ordered, Come ahead, until all of a sudden, as they filed around a little knoll, the three Indians they'd been chasing turned about and let them have it, and down went another horse, and Corporal Feeney. 
was killed for sure. And he, the poor young rookie, saw Indians in every direction coming straight at him. And what else could he do but gallop for home and help? All this, told with much gasping on his part, and heard with much blasphemy by Kennedy, brought the strangely assorted pair at a swift gallop over the springy turf back along the line of that panicky yet most natural retreat. Twice would the big fellow have broken away and again spurred for home, but the little gamecock held him savagely to his work, and so together, at last, they neared the curtaining ridge. "'Now damn you!' hollered Kennedy. "'Whip out your carabine and play you're a man till we see what's in front. "'And if ye play false, the first shot from this barker,' with a slap at the butt of his Springfield, "'goes through your heart.' And this was what they saw, as together they rounded the hillcock and came in view of the low ground beyond. Halfway down the long, gradual slope, in the shallow little dip, possibly an old buffalo wallow, two or three horses were sprawled, and a tiny tongue of flame and blue smoke, spitting from over the broad brown backs, told that someone, at least, was on the alert and defensive. Out on the prairie, three hundred yards beyond, a spotted Indian pony, heels up, was rolling on the turf, evidently sorely wounded. Behind this rolling parapet crouched a feathered warrior, and far still away, sweeping and circling on their mettlesome steeds, three more savage braves were darting at speed. Already they had sighted the coming reinforcements, and while two seemed frantically signaling toward the northwest, the third whirled his horse and sped madly away in that direction. "'Millions be damned!' yelled Kennedy. "'There's only three. Come on, ye scut!' And down they went, full tilt at the Sioux, yet heading to cover and reach the beleaguered party in the hollow. Someone of the besieged waved a hat on high. Two more carabines barked their defiance at the feathered foe, and then came a pretty exhibit of savage daring and devotion disdainful of the coming troopers and of the swift fire now blazing at them from the pit the two mounted warriors lashed their ponies to a mad gallop and bore down straight for their imperiled brother crouching behind the stricken pinto never swerving never halting hardly checking speed but bending low over and behind their chargers necks the two young braves swept onward and with wild whoop of triumph challenge and hatred gathered up and slung behind the rider of the heavier pony, the agile and bedizened form on the turf, then circled away, defiant, taunting, gleeful, yes, even more, with raging eyes. Kennedy sprang from saddle and, kneeling, drove shot after shot at the scurrying pair. Two of the three troopers at the hollow followed suit. Even the big, blubbering lad, so lately crazed with fear, unslung his weapon and fired twice into empty space and a shout of wrath and renewed challenge to come back and fight it out rang out after the Sioux, for to the amaze of the lately besieged, to the impotent fury of the Irishman, in unmistakable yet mostly unquotable English, the crippled warrior was yelling mingled threat and imprecation. "'Who was it, Kennedy? And where did you ever see him before?' a moment later demanded Captain Blake, almost before he could grasp the Irishman's hands and shower his thanks and even while staunching the flow of blood from a furrow along his sunburnt cheek. What's that he was saying about eating your heart? And Kennedy, his head cleared now through the rapture of battle, minded him of his promise to field, and lied like a hero. Sure, how should I know him, sir? They're all of the same spit. But he called you by name. I heard him plainly. So did Meissner here, 
protested Blake. "'Hello, what have you there, Corporal?' he added, as young Fernie, the surely killed, came running back, bearing in his hand a gaily ornamented pouch of buckskin, with long fringes and heavy crusting of brilliant beads. "'Picked it up by that pony yonder, sir,' answered the Corporal, with a salute. "'Beg pardon, sir, but will the captain take my horse? He is hit too bad to carry him.' Two, indeed, of Blake's horses were crippled, and it was high time to be going.' Mechanically, he took the pouch and tied it to his waist-belt. "'Thank God no man is hurt,' he said. "'But now back to Frayne. Watch those ridges and be ready if a feather shows, and spread out a little. Don't ride in a bunch.' But there was a bigger game miles to the west, demanding all the attention of the gathered Sioux. There were none to spare to send so far, and though three warriors, one of them raging and clamoring for further attempt despite his wounds, hovered about the retiring party. Blake and his fellows within another hour were in sight of the sheltering walls of Frayne, and after last and long-range swapping of shots with Blake and Meisner, footing it most of the way, led their crippled mounts in safety towards the Rubicon of the West, the swift-flowing plant. They were still three miles out when Blake found leisure to examine the contents of that beaded pouch, and the first thing drawn from its depth was about the last thing a Christian would think to find in the wallet of a Sioux a dainty little billet scented with wood violet, an envelope of delicate texture containing a missive on paper to match, and the envelope was addressed in a strange, angular, characteristic hand that Blake recognized at once to a man of whom, by that name at least, he had never heard before. Mr. Ralph Moreau. Envelope. End of chapter 8.